Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, July 25th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. By a 50-50 vote with Mike Pence breaking the tie, the Senate... We'll engage in 20 hours of debate on health care, culminating with a votorama, which is the exact manner of legislating first laid out in the Constitution. No, wait, wait, wait. That's not right. In Federalist 10. Oh, wait, I have that wrong. Oh, yeah, here it is. In Season 1, Episode 25 of The Wackiest Ship in the Army. The first senator we heard from after the motion passed, well, it didn't pass, it tied, but it was then shepherded through to the other side by Mike Pence offering an empathetic and responsive hospice care type level of detail, which will no longer be allowed under the Senate health bill. The first voice heard was from John McCain. And perhaps you heard a clip of what he said to his fellow senators. We're getting nothing done, my friends. We're getting nothing done. A fiery quote but paired with a weak vote, critics charged. Why even allow the Senate to take up business in this weird way? This blabapalooza, followed by a votorama, possibly topped off with a Coachella of Medicare cuts. Well, McCain, there on the Senate floor, huge scar above his left eye, was speaking of character and duty. And to him, duty is taking up the business of the Senate in the ways the Senate has taken up business before. He trusts more in that process rather than pointing up to the scoreboard. Sometimes I wanted to win more for the sake of winning than to achieve a contested policy. Point taken, although one might ask, what part of freedom is the particular legislative process that your vote just allowed? And McCain seemed to at least acknowledge the sentiment behind the question. We tried to do this by coming up with a proposal behind closed doors, in consultation with the administration, then springing it on skeptical members, trying to convince them that it's better than nothing. That it's better than nothing? His real challenge was to his fellow Republicans. As he said, let us take what little advantage we have, because we have 52 of us, 48 of them, and let us include our fellow Democrats in what we come up with. If this process ends in failure, which seems likely, then let's return to regular order. You can quibble with McCain's methods. You can worry about the possibility that something will pass out of this weird process. A shaving off of some part of Obamacare. 
a repeal and replace, like skinny Obamacare, they call it in political circles. It's a half-creative phrase to convey that millions will lose health insurance. But if nothing passes, healthcare will actually be in a better position than it has been for a couple years, with Democrats and Republicans working to make it better to improve the lives of people. Neither side will be able to tally the win in that case, which seems a necessary condition for any real progress out of Washington these days. On the show today, I spiel about how the president gets his news. Okay, we know the answer. It's Fox News. But first, Ian Bremmer is a foreign policy scholar whose job it is to worry about all the risks in the world. He's here, and he is worried. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Joining me now is Ian Bremer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group. They do risk assessment. He teaches at NYU. He's a foreign affairs columnist and editor at large at Time. His latest book, Superpower, Three Choices for America's Role in the World, was released in 2015. And I wonder how many amendments he would have to put now that Donald Trump is president. Ian Bremer, you might recall from a few weeks ago, made the rounds or at least his revelation that Putin and Trump met in an undisclosed meeting at the G20 conference made the rounds. Ian, hello. Thanks for coming back. Happy to be back with you, man. Let's just start with that meeting. And from what I understand, of course, it was good that America learned that there was this second meeting. But the danger wasn't just that it was unusual and undisclosed. It was that with only one translator, Trump's words, you think it's possible that the Russians could somehow in the future use Trump's statements in that meeting against him? Why don't you spell that out for me? Well, I mean, what it means is that uh, there is one record of uh, the actual conversation, uh, certainly word for word transcribed by the Russian translator, probably taped as well. And the Americans don't have it. Uh, And so you remember when Obama had his hot mic moment. He was talking to Medvedev and uh, Medvedev was uh, trying to push him on the uh, U.S. support for a missile defense system in Poland, which the Russians strongly opposed. And Obama said, hey, uh, I'm going to have more flexibility after the election. That really hurt uh, Obama. Now imagine that Putin or Putin's associates decide that they want to take one of uh, Trump's statements out of context. For example, in Trump saying he's going to try to do a lot more to reduce sanctions, but Congress is giving him a hard time. Or yes, I'm going to give you back those two properties that you were engaged in surveillance in the in the United States, where the Russians said they were very close to a deal. I mean, you, it's very easy it, when the Russians have the only uh, actual record of this conversation for them to spin it and use it in ways that are useful to them. 
he naively exposed himself. Um, but what about the tradition of pull-asides, where you have a more casual conversation either between leaders or maybe secretaries of state and foreign minister? Does that go on? And is there always a record, a two-sided record of those conversations? Uh, there, there are uh, pull-asides that occur uh, in these meetings at summits all the time. Uh, they're not usually an hour. They'll be five minutes here, 10 minutes there. But when they occur, you're much more careful about having a record if it's with an adversary, someone you don't trust, it's on a sensitive piece of information. When Obama would do pull-asides with the Russians, he would frequently give a readout of the meeting, however informal, afterwards because it was important, it was newsworthy, and uh, you wanted to make sure that you had your gloss on it. Uh, There isn't a relationship that is more scrutinized and more mistrusted in the United States right now than that between Trump and Putin. It's the reason why you see Congress, a Republican-led Congress, actually overwhelmingly voting to support sanctions against Russia that Trump doesn't want. It's because his own party doesn't actually trust that the American president is adequately defending the American national interest in this relationship. So if there was anywhere that you'd want to be careful, if there was any relationship that you'd want to make sure that you'd have a firm control of the readout, it would be this meeting. Were you, were you at the G20? No. Okay. So you were you were in a firsthand observer. People who were there, uh, who witnessed it directly, told you. You essentially told America about it without disclosing your source or getting into the motivations of why these people told you. They, I suppose, had a choice. They could either know that, know this, that this meeting took place, keep it to themselves, and maybe that is a little bit of power for them that they have information that the American public doesn't know. But apparently, they thought it was more important to get this information out there. Why, as a pushback against Putin? Look, I would say, look who's in the room. It's the heads of state from the G20 nations and their spouses. These are people that over the last six months since Trump has been elected, I have spoken with informally about their meetings and their phone calls with the American president. And to a person, they are concerned that they cannot count on the United States as much as they used to. Some of them have perfectly okay relationships with Trump individually, some of them considerably less so, but they're all worried that the U.S.-led global order is coming apart, and a lot of that comes from Trump's America First policy. So they were already on the lookout for anything that feels like this isn't your grandfather's Oldsmobile. And I, I think that when suddenly they're at the G20, the first G20 summit that Trump's ever attended, And it's a long dinner. It goes on for literally three and a half hours and Trump is bored and he gets up. He can go and talk to anybody he wants and the person he chooses to talk to, not in a nefarious way, just because it's the person he's comfortable with is Putin. The people around that room, many of whom are committed American allies, were quite disconcerted by the fact that Trump's best relationship personally is not with one of them, any one of them but is clearly with a country that they consider a primary adversary. I think that I think that was something they absolutely were going to talk about. Okay, so to get this information out, you go on Charlie Rose, good half-hour interview in depth, then the wire services uh, see that interview, they tweet it, they put it out there. You do two other interviews personally. You go on MSNBC, Rachel Maddow. I have how she framed uh, this news. When these headlines pop tonight... When this story first crossed, 
Trump, Putin held a second undisclosed meeting at the G20 summit. When these headlines started to cross tonight in our newsroom, it caused an audible, oh my God, to ripple across our cubicle farm. So what do you think of that characterization or that reaction to your revelations? Uh, you know, her hair was on a little fire. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that I, I probably hadn't appreciated just how much the mainstream media wanted to go crazy uh, on anything involving Trump and Putin. I mean, I knew it was a big story, as you and I have just discussed. I knew it was relevant. It needed to be out there. There are, oh, my God, moments with Trump, you know, kind of five times a day, and most of them don't actually matter this much. This was an important one. I mean, Charlie Rose and I weren't doing any, oh, my God, we were talking about what the implications were. I mean, uh, I don't think this was nefarious. I mean, I, if I had just listened to Rachel there and had no other context, I would have thought this was the molotov ribbentrop pact. Right. And in your answers, uh, consistently and with Rachel, Rachel, and I thought it was a good interview, uh, you use words like highly unusual, disconcerting, but of course not, oh my God. Now you go on Fox, and I suppose, I don't want to put words in your mouth, you want to hit both Americas, all, all the silos that we uh, consume media in? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, again, there's, I, don't, I don't think that news should be partisan, so that's where we are. What is your assessment of... Rex Tillerson's position at state? Well, I mean, as someone who knows Rex, and I've worked with him for a long time, I think that he is, he's not someone you're going to be friends with easily. Um, He, you know, he he obviously, he views his position and his seniority in a very significant way. You know that you're kind of with him as a supplicant, but he's very smart. He executes well. He is trusted by people he has done business with all over the world over decades and his access directly to principles in the Gulf, um, in the former Soviet Union, um, in Europe and in Africa is almost unprecedented in the private sector. So, I mean, he was when you think about other people that were being considered like, you know, Giuliani or Bolton. I mean, you know, Tillerson was absolutely, you know, head and shoulders above a lot of the places that Trump could have gone. And yet Tillerson is also someone who clearly thinks it's ridiculous that he has to report into Jared Kushner. He's not someone that's going to, you know, use sharp elbows to try to get access to the president or ensure that, you know, he gets enough face time to move his policy positions. He doesn't need this job and he's not going to do that kind of lifting. And I think that's one of the reasons why he hasn't been able to make any appointments. It's one of the reasons why he hasn't been seen very much on key issues. And frankly, he's been fairly ineffective so far as secretary of state in a Trump administration that is, you know, on the dysfunctional side of political teams in terms of foreign policy. So let's just take one issue, um, Qatar. So what happened there is that the president in a tweet seemed to side with uh, the UAE, the Egyptians, the Saudis in a uh, in in sanctions and a boycott of Qatar. And that's not necessarily, I would just flat out say, that's not in America's interest. So there Tillerson has to go do some shuttle diplomacy, essentially try to clean up Trump's mess. Does he say, how did I get myself into this? This is not why I signed on to the job. Or does he say, as I think like someone like General McMaster or Mattis might say, this is exactly why I signed up onto the job. I want to protect America. And sometimes that means protecting it from our neophyte president, Donald Trump. What do you think his, do you have any way of knowing or guessing or educatedly guessing about what his uh, reaction was to being pressed into service on that front? 
Yeah, I don't think he likes this at all. Uh, he's clearly expressed a level of frustration both with AIDS over the past few months and also a couple of times publicly with the media in terms of uh, his ability to get people hired, especially because he can't clean it up. I, I think that the Saudi decision to go all in blockade against Qatar, which is a critical partner of the United States, both on intelligence as well as as a, a key military base in the region. Frankly, his ability to do shuttle diplomacy and get the sides to calm down, I think the cat's already out of the bag. It can't be done. So I think American national interests have been significantly undermined here by Trump kind of not knowing what he was doing around the issue and being hosted by the Saudis and then going along with what the Saudi agenda was, along with the UAE, Egypt, and others. And so while I think it's good that Tillerson is there and his abilities do clearly reduce the level of uh, mistakes, the extent of mistakes that get made by Trump when he just goes off by himself on, in a direction. Ultimately, I think that he's probably pretty frustrated that the foreign policy outcomes are not good. And this is also happening in an environment where the United States was already pushing uphill, where the Chinese are developing alternative economic architecture globally, and it gives them more political influence, where the transatlantic relationship was already falling apart where the Arab Spring did not go in the direction that a lot of people hoped it would, where the Iran crisis continues to be a big problem. I mean, you know, if you're Tillerson and you're thinking about your legacy, you're also thinking that if, if you're Tillerson, you probably think rightfully that you had a hell of a lot more influence over the world as CEO as ExxonMobil, including over the president, by the way, than you do as secretary of state. And, and I, I have a hard time seeing Tillerson lasting very long given that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that and that you pointed to one of the frustrations was that he just couldn't get the job done. This is a man with great agency and great power throughout his life. In taking this job, his power has ebbed perhaps even to the point of uh, to the point of impotence. So what about the cuts in the State Department? Now, he publicly supports cutting his own department, but is that just something that he has to go along with? Or does he think that he's actually cutting himself off at the knees? No, I don't think it matters. I think he understands that, uh, you know, that's just political posturing and that the budget is nowhere close to actually being done by Congress. So I wouldn't worry about it. But your earlier point is right on the money, right? Because you've got people like Scaramucci who were born for this job. Mm -hmm. they, they're not, they've got no true north. Their ideology doesn't matter. They're in a position of power. They're in front of the TV every day. They're close to the president. They're just going to do whatever it takes to make the president happy. I think Scaramucci is a really good appointment for Trump, maybe not for the country, but for Trump, where Tillerson is not that. Tillerson does not need this job. He does not need power. You know, he doesn't need to work that hard, frankly. So, I mean, he's already accomplished a hell of a lot in his life. He certainly is very comfortable with himself. And I just don't see him tolerating a lot of this. All right. I have two more questions and they're both on Russia, if you'll uh, indulge me. One is, does the, does the Magnitsky Act work as well as it would seem, just judging by how desperate the Russians seem to be to repeal it? Yeah, I think the Russians are angry about the sanctions. I think they put an economic hit on. They don't talk as much publicly about sanctions hurting them. Um, in uh, with the U.S. Uh, that you know they 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 can they like to say that they can handle anything, but when you talk to the Central Asians, for example, when they're in meetings with the Russians, it comes up all the time what they can do to remove them. So it's interesting. It's always interesting to get other countries' bilaterals to get a feeling on what what countries really think about you. 
I think that this is one that Putin feels like the election of Trump should have been moving the needle on. It didn't. And I have to tell you, Trump came out a week ago when he said, hey, you know, a, a Trump administration is going to be a lot tougher on Russia than a Clinton administration. Now, clearly, that's not what Trump wants, but that is probably the outcome. What will be really interesting is to see how the Russians respond to that. We know they engaged in serious hacks against both the DNC and the RNC in the run up to the elections. Only the DNC emails were released by the Russians. Um, what happens when that starts hitting Trump and his administration and the Republicans? Could be very interesting to watch. Very interesting. Here's my last question. So Mitt Romney says Russia's our biggest enemy. Obama quips the 80s called. They want their foreign policy back. I see uh, Tucker Carlson and Max Boot debating essentially where to rank Russia as uh, a, an enemy. And I, I started thinking about this. You're, you're an expert in risk assessment, but to me, it's like diabetes. How, how bad is diabetes? Oh, it's horrible unless you have insulin and then it can be contained. Um, I, I don't, I, I suppose ISIS is virulent and can kill you. Um, and, and the question is, do they have the means to do so? But it seems like we have a set of policies, we have a set of levers that can be pulled, that can be used to contain or deal with Russia. But if we don't pull those levers, then yeah, I think you'd have to say that this other country, if allowed unchecked, could be extremely dangerous if allowed to go unchecked. Yeah, I mean, dangerous. I don't know how if I'd go extremely dangerous. Let's keep in mind the Russian economy is smaller than Manhattan's. Uh, it's smaller than Canada and Italy. Uh, it is a country in decline. Right, but the the other the other force that pushed Russia off the page, the one that people agreed with, is oh yeah, they're more dangerous or terrorist groups that have an economy smaller than like two blocks of Manhattan. Yeah, and I don't buy that. I think the terrorist organizations are also not nearly this level of threat to the U.S. I mean, clearly the biggest threat to the United States in terms of a geography or an actor is China. And that's because they're soon to be the world's largest economy. They're spending big money and they're aligning a bunch of countries around the world towards them, which is it means that we're not going to have a global free market anymore. We'll have a hybrid economy. And, you know, the Marshall Plan after World War II is what allowed the United States to really become supreme as the world's superpower. Um, but that's precisely the U.S. doesn't have a global economic strategy or Marshall Plan anymore. The Chinese actually do. So but I do believe that for the Russians, especially especially on cyber, where the Americans have great offensive capabilities, the Russians do too, but we don't really know how to play defense. And the Russians are much more willing and capable of using what they have um, than the Americans are in part because they don't have to deal with transparency and they don't have to deal with, you know, separation, balance of powers and the rest. So I think those things do mean that as a proximate day-to-day -day threat, uh, Russia is something we have to that hits above their weight and we have to pay a fair amount of attention to. Ian Bremer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group, Time foreign affairs columnist and editor at large. Thank you so much, Ian. Yeah, that's great. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. 
Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And now the spiel. Donald Trump is a master brander. Little Marco, Lion Ted, Sleazy Adam Schiff. You notice that one? That's a new one. Here's one from yesterday. The Amazon Washington Post fabricated the facts of my ending massive, dangerous, and wasteful payments to Syrian rebels fighting Assad. Wait, the Amazon Washington Post? Amazon? That's, that's the insult? The most awe-inducing company to capitalists? The very kind of person who tells Donald Trump at a golf tournament that he owns, that they love the job he's doing because the stock market's doing well? That's an insult. That's a pejorative. Anyway, this whole story is a little complex, but don't worry, it's also really stupid. How we got to this place where the president was blaming the Washington Post, the Amazon Washington Post, for being inaccurate to the confusion of the Washington Post. The president himself confirmed what the Washington Post reported. So why was he slamming them for dishonesty? And why was he doing it a week late? The story ran on the 19th. The key seems to be that this nearly week-old story was discussed by Tucker Carlson on Fox last night. It would be bad enough if the president were popping off, having only read a headline of a piece. This is worse. He's relying on Tucker Carlson to read the headline for him, and then he's mischaracterizing the report. In other words, Trump is doing this because Putin wants him to. There can be no other reason. In other words, there can be no other reason. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the first sentence of the Post piece was a direct echo of the headline. I will read it. President Trump has decided to end the CIA's covert program to arm and train moderate Syrian rebels battling the government of Bashar al-Assad, a move long sought by Russia, according to the U.S. officials. In other words, there can be no other reason. But here's the second sentence. The program was a central plank of a policy begun by the Obama administration in 2013 to put pressure on Assad to step aside, but even its backers have questioned its efficacy since Russia deployed forces in Syria two years later. And then the piece once again emphasized that Russia did want this move, but then the piece says, the shuttering of the program is also an acknowledgement of Washington's limited leverage and desire to remove Assad from power. Moscow wanted the program ended, but also the program wasn't working. I, as a reader, was very pleased to understand the context of the decision. It was what we might call good journalism. But our president, he's not much of a reader. He's a watcher and a relier on Tucker Carlson's reading ability, which is fine. Tucker's a smart guy, but he's also a pandering showman meaning he was purposefully deceptive about what the article really said. Now, you would hope the president would rely on his experts, the best in the world, on position papers, on sources very close to the situation, something other than a newspaper, the Washington Post, who relied on what version of those people or those resources they had access to. But you would really, really hope that the president would rely on the actual Washington Post, not Tucker Carlson reads the Washington Post. No, sorry, Tucker Carlson misreads the Washington Post. Or maybe something else was going on with Trump. Maybe he was mad at the Amazon Washington Post for other reasons. Could it be that late at night in the living quarters of the White House, a conversation like this went on? Okay, Alexa, you're in tremendous shape. 
But I have a question, Alexa. Who had the biggest crowd at any presidential inauguration? Barack Obama. No, Alexa. Who had the biggest crowd at his inauguration? Donald Trump. Alexa, who won the popular vote? Hillary Clinton won the popular vote with forty-eight point two percent to Donald Alexa, Trump's forty-six. Alexa, we are going to replace Obamacare with something terrific. Believe me. Do you believe me, Alexa? Alexa, do you believe me? Hmm. I don't know that one. Sad, Alexa. Sad. The term sadness has a few meanings. As a noun, one, emotions experienced when not in a state of well-being. Two, the state of being sad. Three, the quality of excessive mournfulness and unsure. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is getting nothing done. She's on vacation. Just producer Chris Berube is getting some things done. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is involved in a messy, haphazard practice of making dessert of whole or pieces of fruit in a sugar syrup. Compotorama. The gist. There is a saying in Tibetan that at the door of the miserable rich man sleeps the contented beggar. What? Oh, no, no. This isn't Votorama. This is Quotalama. Oomperu depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.